0: Dear artists, welcome to another episode of the From the Ground Up podcast, produced for HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. I'm your host, Jeffrey Moser, recording from the ancestral homelands of the Pottawatomie, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee, now known as Milwaukee, Wisconsin. These episodes are shared digitally to the internet. Let's take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within the technology, structure, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the work we make leave a significant carbon footprint contributing to climate change that disproportionately affects indigenous people worldwide. I invite you to join me in acknowledging the truth and violence perpetrated in the name of this country as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Dear artists, oh my goodness, one international interview followed by another. Today, we have Stuart Pringle from the National Theatre of London. This is the final episode of season three, and for me, it's a bit poetic as this episode leaves off where my thesis left off. Uh, Since 2018, I've had the National Theatre in the back of my head as a catalyst for creating theatre, and you'll hear us talk a bit about their process as an incubator for generating new work. It came into my mind long ago when I first learned that War Horse was developed there. It was then that I sort of looked around and said, why aren't we lifting up ensembles like this at larger theaters? Stewart is senior dramaturg there, where he oversees the development of so many companies and their processes, among other new play development. He brings up some really amazing points that I won't spoil now. He also mentions at least three handfuls of theater companies and artists that have had their work developed at the National. I'll include these notes on the show page, but let me mention them now here. The Old Red Lion Pub Theater, Breach Theater Company, Emma Franklin, Leeds Playhouse, Nottingham Playhouse, Sheep Soup, Octagon Theater, New Diorama Theater, Ken Campbell, Wardrobe Ensemble, Gecko Theater, Simon McBurney and Complicite, National Portfolio Arts Council, Eve Lee, and Hunter and Hund, who we interviewed in the last episode. It is a small world. You'll also hear him reference different theaters at the National Theater, including the Dorfman Theater, which is a 450-seat flexible auditorium. Okay, our second international artist in two episodes, Stuart Pringle from the National Theater of London, England, coming to your ears right now. We chatted on November 21st, 2022. Enjoy. Enjoy. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me here. This is this is a uh, this is a real treat, and I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, you know, I'd just like to get started, getting to know a little bit more about you Stuart, and find out how you found yourself at the National Theatre of London.
1: Yeah, I suppose I found myself here by a very roundabout route. I um I, I grew up in the north of England, in Northumberland, in a very small village. I was there doing sort of uh, quite a lot of drama at school and things like that uh, and always thought that it might be something I wanted to do but didn't really know in what field I'm not that good an actor and not that good a singer and all of it, all of that stuff. Went off to university, studied English literature at my undergrad and I did a master's in American literature and did a lot of theatre while there and then moved to London and spent about five years trying to get into theatre which is a long-winded process. I ran my own theatre company, set up a theatre festival And then started kind of writing plays for the theatre company that I was running. And then uh, eventually working all sorts of jobs in advertising and teaching and and immersive theatre and anything I could find really. And also at the same time, I was working as a theatre critic, basically because I couldn't afford to go to the theatre. I wanted free tickets and I also enjoyed kind of, I guess, applying sort of critical thinking to work that I was seeing. And uh, so I was a theatre critic in the kind of background for about four or five years um, for various places. And then, yeah, and then I guess... I decided to kind of make the leap and was lucky enough to get a, a job running the Old Red Lion pub theatre in uh, North London, which I ran for three years, a great time, uh, nearly killed me, um, but it was great. And then uh, from there, I moved to the Bush Theatre and became the associate dramaturg. And um, it's the first time I'd ever really used that word about myself and certainly the first time I'd ever had that that title and was there for about a year and a half. And then I moved to the National almost five years ago now. Um theatre I'd always loved but had no idea about how it worked internally and I think I um, yeah I moved here partly because it's a brilliant theatre um but but more because I think I wanted to know how a, a large organisation like this made theatre really and um yeah it's been an exciting journey of discovery.
0: You find yourself working particularly on new works then is that true?
1: yeah largely i mean it's it's a combination of things really Uh, we do do the way that the 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 new work department as it's called at the national theatre which is the building i am in now functions is that basically everything new that goes on the national comes through this building in some way so it may uh, be originated here or it may be originated elsewhere and come into here anything that's new on the stages will come through here somehow and that's everything from a totally new play commissioned by us and developed by us to a new version of an existing play or even say a cut down of an existing play, you know, a new cut, a Shakespeare play or whatever. Um, And the dramaturgy team here uh, uh, helps uh, facilitate those developments of work. And yeah, so some of it occasionally will be working on a reimagined classic or a cut down version of an existing play. Um, But the meat of what I do here is, yeah, new work.
0: And you have your own building for entirely for new work. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that's it. It's this building here. It's um, it's an old paint frame building where they used to paint the sets for um, big big shows in London. And it's now since the eighties, it's been basically run as a kind of auto- semi-autonomous um, wing of the National Theatre, which which, uh, in the current administration under Rufus, is point is, is is created to largely make work for the stages of National. But yeah, it's a whole building. It's got three large, two very large rehearsal studios, one smaller rehearsal studio, and a sort of plethora of smaller rooms, meeting rooms, a library. It's where we hold the archive for the National Theatre and and also all of the kind of administrative rooms and resources required to essentially run three full-time workshop spaces, uh, pretty much 50 weeks a year or something like
0: that. Are those workshop spaces full for the most part throughout the, the year?
1: and um, I would say if you went through the whole year and took all of the workshop spaces, there's three spaces. I would say it's half to two-thirds full, I would say. You know, we've wow. usually got at least one workshop in. Uh, this week, for instance, we have three full workshops in all three of the spaces. And then all of the subsidiary spaces are also taken, which is why I'm in this echoey room today, because uh, in every other room there's someone doing something. It's it's run like a theatre, really, in that rooms and spaces are programmed, tech teams are applied to them, support staff are put in place to, to facilitate the work. And then sharings take place, the only difference between it and a theatre is that there's no audience or no public audience. But it does feel like a theatre in a lot of ways. You know, we have technical department, we have producers, uh, we have administrators, we have dramaturgs, and and associate artists. And, yeah, it's just the audience that's missing.
0: So there's no stage in this space. It's just uh, it's just um, all uh, for the work.
1: Yeah, exactly. The rooms the, there's no permanent stages, and the rooms can be kind of turned into whatever uh, they might need to be. There is there are sharings quite regularly on a Friday afternoon. We tend to share work that had been created during the week. So there's usually something to watch on a Friday afternoon, and that's also the time in which we bring stakeholders you know, the artistic director, the senior producers, everyone like that from the main building, bring them over to see what we've been cooking up basically, and to help make decisions on what we might want to put forward in the future.
0: Gotcha. So you're not necessarily workshopping things in the moment to be brought over to a main stage. Is that true?
1: We are doing that. We basically workshops here can be at any different point of uh, of, a, of a show's development. So at the kind of most early stage, it might be a bunch of people in a small room with a big bit of paper on the wall, working out what they're going to create. Uh, it builds up from that to you know we have post readings for new plays that we're excited about. But then from there, we also go up to workshops to test out various production questions and elements of a show. All the way through to workshops, which are once a show's been programmed, once it's you know building up towards going into rehearsal. We hold large workshops here to answer, again, the kind of nitty gritty of production. You know, how do you make a horse on stage uh, convincingly? Uh, How do you kind of, you know, how do you create an ocean with eternity in it for the Neil Gaiman Project or or whatever? So the the workshops can be anything and we build them in a very bespoke manner. And they're everything from just a bunch of chairs in a circle to, you know, uh, sort of fully realized kind of constructed sets and environments, whatever's needed really to to get the play to where it needs to be to go on onto the, to make the journey onto the stages.
0: So can you talk to me a little bit more about how the Generate program fits into that, which, so you're talking about multiple projects, multiple new works happening in workshop processes the whole time. Are they all part of the Generate program or are, can you isolate what the, what makes the Generate program different than the other workshops that are happening?
1: Uh, so when so uh, before Rufus, who's our current artistic director, Rufus Norris, before he took over, and um, the studio had a, a much looser connection to the main building. It, it would create work. Some work would would be created here and then make the journey to the main building. Work like War Horse was begun here in in that in that way. But a lot of projects and artists came into the building just to experiment, essentially. And the work was never intended for the stages here. It was it was. And there was a separate literary department in the National Theatre, which would occasionally cross-pollinate with the work of the of the new work department in the studio. When Rufus took over the National Theatre Studio, this building became the new work department, absorbed the literary department. So everything in new work now occurs here. Um, and the intention was that everything we do in this space, more or less, almost everything, is pointed at the stage. So everything we develop here must at least have a possibility of finding its way onto the stages. In practical terms there was still a certain amount of work which came in here which would be supported in a more casual way which was maybe a company which had very specific production requirements but without the resources themselves to 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 realize them would come in and, and we'd help them out in some way for instance uh, a theater race work at the bush theater was doing a show uh with which the leading role was sarah Gordy, who's a wonderful actor who has down syndrome and they weren't sure how to provide the kind of necessary uh, support around Sarah to be able to perform the show in terms of having a uh, possibility of having line feeds, if required. I don't actually ever required them, but we needed to build the possibility of it in. And so they came to the National and said, "We can't afford to build this technology. Can we have a week with you?" And and that that space was provided in that way. But the majority of work was pointed at our stages. And when the pandemic occurred, when the pandemic began, rather I should say, obviously the theatre closed, and it meant that all of the shows that we were building and all the kind of shows we were building for the stages started creating a little bit of a backlog, as a lot of theatres had. And suddenly the kind of amount of slots available between now and the end of Rufus's time as artistic director in a few years became became really cramped. And also we found that, you know, as everyone knows, that the the, the the entire industry, not just the national, but the entire industry was in a kind of place of, of financial difficulty, of sort of shrunken budgets, of un, uncertainty about audiences and all of those other things. And so the decision was made in order to both answer the question of, what do you do with all of this kind of engine power and a limited amount of slots to create work for, as well as how do you support the wider ecology? The decision was made that a third of all of the time and money that this building has would be pointed outside of the National Theatre and and largely actually outside of London. So you know it's, you've got a big responsibility as a National Theatre. It says it on you know it says it all over the walls. You're supposed to be national. wear a big concrete lump in London, there's a problem there. And the Generate programme is, I guess, another way of of how we can try and make the theatre truly national. So it means that a third of everything we do now is companies and theatres and artists coming in who are making work, which is very specifically not to be considered for our stages, but to be made to hopefully help to provide some kind of extra support and bandwidth for the larger theatre ecology in the UK, and particularly for the theatre ecology outside of London. We do just work with London theatres, but generally with the Generate thing, the idea is that Rachel Twigg, who's the senior producer here at the theatre, and myself, will go out and find companies from outside of London uh, who are making great work and give them the opportunity to help develop, develop work which they are planning to, to produce. It's not intended for work which is uh it's not intended for work which is speculative. Any show that goes into generate has to have a route to production planned. Uh so it's it's for work which is going to happen at a theatre or other space uh, within the UK. Uh new work uh and work which could benefit from a week or so of time and financial resource to to help it blossom i suppose
0: got it so you actually are or somebody somebody will be out sort of scouting for different productions around the area around around europe around england around or uh just anywhere and everywhere
1: <laughs> yeah and most of the focus the focus is within the uk and it's like within uh within england um at the moment it's it's a combination of scouting and relationship development as well as we also receive pictures from theaters and theater companies you know we Part of what we try to do here and part of what my role is here is to try and increase the national reach of the studio and the national more generally. So, we're, you know, we we have a good we have good relationships and a good network with with other theatres within the within the UK. And we sort of, you know, we've invited people to to pitch ideas to us that could be appropriate for the Generate programme. But, yeah, it's also about going out and finding those companies. And that's I guess that's part of what we do as a national theatre anyway, is we spend quite a lot of time or as much as we can getting out of town and seeing work and seeing artists who are not within London and, and, and both in terms of what shows and artists we want to bring into our theatre, uh, but also just to get, you know, to have some kind of sense of the, of the theatrical landscape within the country.
0: And with Generate, you're looking for companies in particular that might be making, are they making in a traditional fashion? Or are they making in more of like the ensemble or collaborative process?
1: Well, I guess it's, it's all sorts of companies and making work in all sorts of different ways. Um, but generally, the National Theatre the doesn't work with a huge amount of ensemble companies and companies who work um, in non-tech space way so we're quite although we do do work outside of text-based practice most of the kind of bread and butter of the, of the national is still text-based partly because i think there's not vast amounts of work being produced which can fill the scale of our stages which is non-text-based i mean to be argued but it's certainly uh that's that's been the kind of received wisdom so in a way generate has been an opportunity for us to open up our doors a little bit wider to companies who come from a devised practice from an ensemble practice who are, who are approaching theater making in a different way um, and that's one of the exciting things I think for Rachel and myself is that you know we both come from a background of loving and and working in, in theatres which supported more experimental work and non text based work, uh, devised work, you know all of that. That hasn't always been the kind of itch that could be scratched within the National Theatre, and it, it feels like Generate really gives us that opportunity, you know, to get these great exciting companies in who are you know who who naturally are then. Are going to cross-pollinate with our own practices and our own processes and, and 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 provide inspiration for the building as well as uh as well as kind of gaining gaining hopefully some some support from it. We are not looking for pieces that have already had a production generally, we're looking for pieces which are in their in the midst of their journey. And what we really want to do is be able to apply this financial support and spatial support at a kind of crux moment for them. You know, it's it's the bit where you go we would love to be able to do this, but we just can't quite make this moment work, or we're not quite able to work with a chorus in the way that we hoped, or we can't really get the choreography where we'd like it to be because we've only got three weeks to rehearse it and a limited, you know, et cetera. Um, We hope we can step in there and go, look, well, if with our help, can you can you maybe realize that and also you know with the real, being realistic about the way that arts funding works within the uk is our help uh, going to allow you to leverage more support further down the line you know can the fact that we're backing it supporting it giving you you know a relatively small amount of money you know it's you know the, the top end of our kind of expenditure on a generate program is about ten thousand pounds um and we can't do that many of that those per year um but uh but hopefully that will allow them to then whether it's via the arts council or other funding bodies uh, help fill in the future make make the money go further and and kind of and grow out the support that they have so we're looking for projects you know we've had all sorts we get a lot of musical projects have come into us but, but really in all, all kinds of uh from all kinds of companies and what we like for them to come in with is a question really or a problem that needs solving and then we can hopefully help them find the right people to answer that question and give them the time to puzzle it out.
0: Are you paying the artists, and are you f- covering their housing? If if they're coming from outside of London, or if they're coming from outside the area, are you are you co- what sort of support are you covering them with then?
1: Um, we we always pay a standard rate to every artist who works in the building, so we pay them that rate per day that they're working on for everyone they want to bring, and also we do provide some subsidy in terms of transport and and housing. It's not we don't we can't pay for everything, but you know there is some support built in there for companies outside of London. The majority of companies who we're working with also have their own have some of their own financial support that they can that they can bring in but yeah we, we sort of give them the same deal that we would give any company making work at the national theatre is the idea and it's always a negotiation you know we 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 go through a process of a parameter of parametering anything that happens here in the same way as we do for activity that were that is pointed at our stages but you know we want to be able to give them as much as we can and for them to get the absolute most out of it uh, sometimes that is sometimes that isn't huge amounts and it's just some money for some actors and some time Sometimes it's really full on and, and, and more involved.
0: Can you share some companies that have worked with you recently?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think who I can sort of talk about. For instance, Breach Theatre, who are a devised theatre company, who I'm actually on the board for, so I, I feel I can talk about their projects a little bit more safely. But um, they came in and did some time on a new musical they're developing, about uh, about section 28 and about the criminalisation of, of homosexuality and education in the, in the 1980s. Uh, it's the biggest show they've ever done. It's much more complicated uh, than anything they've ever made before. It's musical. It's got a large cast, blah, blah, blah. We were able, They were able to come here try that out and also offer a sharing at the end of it, which allowed them to bring some potential other funders and people like that into the room. We are doing, this week we've got, for instance, we've got a really brilliant artist uh, named Emma Franklin, who's got a a new version of the play Galatea, which she is bringing to uh, Brighton Festival next year. She's working here to to kind of build out the choral elements of that and think also a little bit about the way in which that story intersects with ideas of refugees and, and immigration. So we're supporting that this week we've had theatre companies like northern stage have been down leeds playhouse nottingham playhouse uh, we've also had a musical group called sheep soup came and spent some time here working with us um, i mean so it's, it's a big variety of, of, of companies and i think the idea is that it's both it's both the major kind of regional theatres uh, you know with bolton octagon came down to try it they just had a, they just did a version of the book thief musical which they brought down um, and we gave them a week which allowed them to really build that world of that musically. So yeah, it's a mixture of sort of, of of regional houses, theaters outside of London, but also companies who are creating work in a different way. They don't necessarily have to be affiliated with the, with national theater, uh, sorry, with a the theater themselves to, to come down here. They can be companies making work independently as long as they have a credible route to production for that, for that show.
0: Yeah. Are there any other theater companies around UK, around, Europe that are doing anything like this?
1: It's hard to say, really. I mean, um, because the way that the National Works is so different, because we've got this separate building, because we've got this new work department, um, we always feel like slightly, a slightly different approach to to, to to making work and supporting artists than other buildings. But, you know, we've, we've certainly looked at, I suppose we've looked at the ways in which I think there have been amazing developments in the last few years. Just talking about London specifically in people answering some of the questions Maybe at a smaller scale, than we're doing uh, in terms of the, the the companies they're working with. But actually, in some really bold ways, there's a theatre called the New Diorama Theatre, um, which is run by a really inspirational man named David Byrne, which did you know, if anything, a bigger project than than, than generate in some ways, in which they they gave away tens of thousands of hours of rehearsal space for free uh, for companies which applied in the centre of London. And you know, rehearsal space is the thing which which is desperately, desperately needed in London. It's extortionately expensive. And and it really does uh, strangle, I think, a lot of the the creativity possible in this city. And and the new diorama gave away, you know, yeah, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of hours of space away for free to companies, regardless of whether they had a future life plan for their show. And I thought that was, it, it only lasted for a year. It was a collaboration with British Land and various other stakeholders, but I just thought it was the most inspirational example of how you can, you can think outside of the box and you can break accepted rules like you know you need to pay for rehearsal space you know what happens when you take that away um and i think you know they were working at companies usually at an earlier part of their career but then then the generate programs open to but that's the kind of thinking at the grassroots level which is i think necessary to create a really diverse and exciting and representative uh, set up of artists in the new generation the national theatre does a huge amount of work to try and increase its national scope. And I'm very proud of all of that. It's the work that I think is most important that the theatre does is, is, you know, the work it takes in the schools, the work it takes into, on tour to other theatres, the work it takes uh, into cinemas and NT Live and everything like that. So that's the stuff that I think is really, really vital. And, and you know, as someone not from London at all, um, and not even from the South of England, it's something that I, I think is like the most important work that we do. Um, but we can't be everywhere. And... I can't be doing everything but generate it's it's really lovely i think the first shows that we supported through generate have started to happen on stages as i say you know bolt not show earlier this year and things like that and it's just lovely to see the national theatres' fingerprints even even when when very light on a project that is you know making a real difference to a community which we're not necessarily able to as directly reach um and you know rufus made a big point when you took over here being like the the the, the tagline of the national theater is national theater is for everyone a national theater for everyone and that's a really laudable ambition and i feel like generate is another part of trying to make that happen um, and 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 another way that that happens that maybe isn't super visible to the you know, the critics and the general public and the press and all of that. Um, but I've always sort of felt like the, the national is not sort of iceberg institution is always what I say. And, and all of the, all of the biggest and best stuff is under the surface. And um, I think I, I believe that this is another example. Of-
0: That's great. That's great. I'm kind of melding two questions at the same time in my head here. So forgive me if this comes out wrong, but I I've come, <laughs> this is going to be a mess. Potentially Uh good thing. I can edit all of this. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um You know, it's uh, so obviously you don't want So it sounds like you give. So right now it sounds like with the generate program, you're getting them to the next step. So they're already in the place where they can develop something further. It could be like a a bit of writing the text or working on a technical moment or doing something. Uh, So it sounds like. one thing, let me, let me give an example is I've heard of different programs, you know, assisting a a group from outside to the extent that they can no longer take it on tour because it's impossible for them to, they've built it up so large that it's impossible for them to possibly tour, right? What they really need are a couple of stage cubes and some music stands, but you've been given a proscenium arch and a, and a neon, 10 neon signs, right? So it, it sounds to me like you're working with them within the confines of what they need. In order to make sure that they're going to have success when they return to their location,
1: and that's one of the reasons that we try to be very explicit about the fact that the Generate program isn't just a, isn't just a backdoor way of pitching shows to the National Theatre. You know, like we're not interested in people coming in secretly hoping that the show goes on in the Dorfman, but just doing a, a week here. You know, that's that's very much not the point. The point is that it's realistic and practicable for them to take into whatever the, the, its future stage is. I mean, I guess that's probably why. One of the reasons why we, we say it has to be a show with a credible and and confirmed route to production. You know, when I'm not really interested in us taking a, a brilliant device company who are who are on a really, a really excellent journey to future success, bouncing their show out of any theater that's ever going to book them. You know, that's very much not what we're about. And we have to be careful about that. And I think it's that's part of the process of selecting companies to work with. It's part of the process of choosing. Of of being very realistic with them and open with them at an early stage about what their expectations should be and what kind of project is appropriate. But you know, we have in the past turned down projects, I think, which we felt were that in, in which the the extra resource might actually be a hindrance. And it's it's a huge part of the journey as a kind of in in a kind of literary management stroke, creator, producing role, whatever, within the National Theatre, it's very important that that the the kind of scale of the building and the scale of what it does doesn't create. Unhelpful fluctuations within the the really the really kind of nourished and successful uh, generation of a of a career or a trajectory for either an artist or a piece of work. You know, you, you 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 sort of have to be aware that you have quite big footprints, and you need to not sort of end up damaging something which is being built delicately and carefully, and has and has a kind of a, a root to its own its own fulfillment and my my belief is very much that not every show and not every company needs to be working at what we call the mid-scale or certainly not at the large scale something i end up talking about quite a lot um with friends who work in devising settings is that the ambition of every devising company is not to produce work large enough to go on in a thousand seat theatre and i fundamentally believe that uh that it's not a measure of success how many people can watch it at the same time it's a very different metric and some of the best work i've ever seen was was one-on-one work in which I was the only audience member. You know whether that's on Good or whether you know or whether that's uh, a work by people artists like Andy Field. Like the, the the form and content question is 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 not one which I feel is useful to conflate with an idea of 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 kind of growth at all costs. And I don't believe in growth at all costs in any respect. Certainly not in the theatre. So I think. We, we want to make sure that any kind of uh, time and resource that we put behind something is going to help it become the best version of itself. Uh, and, and, and that's the same with artist companies projects. Uh, and the best version of itself is not necessarily the one that can fill, you know, uh, Birmingham Hippodrome. And, you know, that's, that's part of the negotiation. That's why we, that's why we, you know that's why we don't say yes to everyone <laughs> one of the reasons we don't say yes to everyone and it's part of the curatorial it's part of the curatorial responsibility of the building and, and, and of the generate program uh to, to ensure that people its own best form not a presumed best form
0: Yeah, right, right, right. That's great. Also, I just uh, interviewed Alex Alexander from Gund. Oh, so so glad, (laughs) so glad to hear his name again
1: here. (laughs) An absolute legend. I absolutely, I think he's absolutely brilliant. And and they're such a fantastic example of a company who have not just kept making bigger and bigger shows, but like keep making their shows better and more interesting. uh, And and are quite happy to follow up, you know, a huge immersive show with a with a solo bit of poetry, or you know, they they. Intellectually, artistically, rigorous in a in a really thrilling way. And we've done work with them here uh, in our digital department, which has been really exciting. I just think they're brilliant, and yeah, great a great example of why bigger is is just not not better necessarily in theatre. Wild, wild. Yeah, he was telling me <laughs> about some. He's telling
0: about some uh, a new show that's that may just be coming and show up in a box, and that's it. Like just some right, uh, right. Sure. And I'm like, that sounds brilliant. I would, I would, I would see that.
1: <laughs> yeah, they've made me do some of the weirdest. weirdest and sort of some of the most unpleasant times i've ever had in the theater but some of the best (laughs) as well have been sort of alexander's fault in one way or another i think
0: you know i'm kind of curious so how is ensemble based work regarded in the uk or devised work
1: i think it's it's just tends to be we're such a text obsessed culture and we're sort of you know, we, we sort of, we vacillate between being, I suppose, a, a writer's culture, um, which we sort of naturally lean towards, I think, because uh, of the kind of weight of the canon and things like that, and, and a director's theatre in that more reggae theatre kind of, you know, uh, mainland Europe uh, way. But we're sort of, neither of those things is the devising theatre. And and I think devise, devised work has, has a long and illustrious history in the experimental uh, fields within the UK. But we're just... I, I'm, I'm not even sure how true any of this is now that I think about it, because people like Ken Campbell were making you know work for large stages that used devising processes and things like that. I slightly suspect that the way that we think about devising an ensemble work now is the same way everyone does, which is that we feel like we just invented it um, uh, or, or we feel like it's sort of the, the, the hot new thing. But I, I, I do think it tends to itself confined to smaller spaces and um, and i think a lot of that's about the way in which literary departments well the, the name literary department suggests <laughs> fairly heavily that you know that, that devising work is going to struggle to get through but we we, we tend to assess work initially at a reading stage uh um, before we invest and devised work requires an investment prior to there being anything to read generally or anything substantive to read so i think the theatre industry in the uk sometimes struggles with it uh and and so it ends up in i suppose art more art house like spaces, but there's, you know, there's always exceptions to those rules. Companies like wardrobe ensemble, you know, making large scale devised work or at least mid scale devised work based on popular titles and things like that. I think, you know, certainly once you start pushing into the dance world and and you, you end up with, with really well thought of companies and companies like Gecko who we've worked with in the past, who do do big scale, you know, work that that's that can find its way into fairly mainstream spaces. But even when you see that, it tends to be for shorter runs. It tends to be as a kind of in more of a festival context or whatever. You know, we we have a, a nervousness about putting uh, non-text based work in front and center in our big spaces, and that's something that I don't think you know the National Theatre does reflect that to a certain extent. I think, and I think that's it's all chicken and egg really. But I think there's a nervousness around audience understanding of that process and of that kind of work. We still just fate our, our writers most of all, which is wonderful that, you know, one of the greatest resources the country has, but I think it can sometimes be at the expense of, of devised work. I'm sort of speaking for myself rather than the national now. Yeah, and but I think, you know, I think it's, I think people are opening up to it. But then, as I say, I think we probably have been opening up to it since Peter Brook's day. And uh, and I don't know what stage of that we're at right now.
0: <laughs> you know, one of my favorite things someone told me is like, it, we say, we call things physical theater and people say oh so what do you call physical theater in europe and they just say theater you know it's just yeah. straight up it's just it's just theater right it is not a you don't have to classify it right um, and yeah, so there's yeah. sort of this broad idea that like, well, this, that uh, the work that is non-traditional has to be classified in some way or put into a pigeonhole be- in order to better understand it. Right. Whereas really you're just after ideas, all we're, all we're ever trying to do is communicate ideas. And I think that's so fascinating to, I think you're right. And I'm really, I'm really, I'm going to take that with me, that the literary <laughs> department sort of isolates uh, a, a particular way of working. That's interesting.
1: And it's really weird, isn't it? Because like um, audiences don't care what, once they're watching it, they don't really care whether it, like they don't, you know it doesn't really matter to them whether it was written by someone or advised by so they, they receive the, the story and the, and the experience um uh it's, it's another one of those ways in which you sort of like feel like marketing and critical culture and everything like that all kind of uh uh and, and literary departments and dramaturgs and everyone they're all collaborating really to kind of uh, create a, a situation which in which device works hardest to find an audience for. But you know, all works, everything they watch is devised to an extent. You know, the work of the work of rehearsal room is a devising process. It just might start from a more a firmer text. But if you look at something like Lehman Trilogy, which we, you know, which was, you know, obviously written by Messini, adapted by Ben Power, directed by Sam Mendes, but so much of what that so much of what the audience receive when they go and see Lehman, uh uh wherever they see it, uh, in 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 the National Theatre production was devised mm-hmm. in that in the room, you know, that was the, the, yeah. the the movement of it from a cast of 30 to uh, to a cast of three, or the, you know, the transformation of a poem into a play, that, that was part of the process of that room. And that's devising, I mean, uh, if devising means anything, it's just that there was something, a more substantive bit of material to, to build from, I suppose.
0: One of the things that I think per, uh, prevents a lot of uh, potential devising at a larger regional theater here in the States is just the amount of money and de- that it would take for development because of you know perhaps because of the actors unions or otherwise you know we we're, we're held to a certain certain number of weeks of rehearsal on a certain rate of pay and a certain which is all important and whatnot i'm not i'm not saying uh, it's not but it does it does prevent a lot of things from actually being generated or devised in in a in a traditional more traditional setting do you think that that is something that is a big concern at, at national theater or some of the larger theaters
1: yeah, okay. I think it's I think it's definitely a part of the reason why it's it's maybe sometimes viewed a little bit with a little bit more caution, but I sort of think that's my well, so uh, sort of cards on the table. My wife runs a devised theatre company, so uh so I I kind of hear a lot of the, the other side of this. And you know, they've worked uh, they work at uh, a relatively small scale in the UK, you know, in sort of 100 seater theatres, but they've also made work for the Schaubühne in Berlin and uh and Shakespeare House in, in in Vienna and 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 uh, and a kind of spreading out into Europe but you know their process to make work within the UK they have a three-week rehearsal period and probably two weeks of workshopping in advance of that so you know, even if you tot it all up you're talking about five weeks in the room which is less time than a show at the national spends in the room and uh, you know we've got a big musical that we're making for next year um and that's been in development for nearly 10 years here that's text-based you know that's got a great writer and everything like that it's based on a a great book and and yeah and you know i don't know how many weeks it's taken in that time but it's a comparable it's comparable to warhorse right and you know you mentioned warhorse earlier as a national theater sort of success story but that again that was a you know play and based on a book and with you know you know two directors and all of that and and took and took you know hundreds of thousands, not millions of pounds of development over years and years and years to to create and was hugely successful. There's no particular reason why devised work has to, has to take, you know, takes longer than that, I think. And it's more, I think, it's about what is the you're slightly making it, taking a bet as a theater when you commission a bit of work, when you bring artists in, you're taking a little bit of a gamble, like it's part of the process. Not everything we build here goes on our stages. And we try and, you know, minimize the amount of, of work that doesn't go somewhere that is developed here. But most things, even the majority of things that are developed here won't go onto our stages anyway, and even the things we hope will. And there's wastage always, but hopefully it's not real wastage because it goes elsewhere or whatever. But you know, that 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 that's a reality of making of making theater. And I think we're just not very good necessarily or very trained at working out what a good bet is in devising theatre um compared to a script. You know, a script is like quite a lot of quite a lot of the cards are down already when you have a script and sometimes none of them are down with the devising company um and so you know you've, you the, the companies who who are making work at a really uh, uh uh large in large scale places and have and have you know um commensurate budgets are ones which have such impeccable track records like Simon McBurney's uh, Complicite and companies like that, who yeah. you know, because the cards that are down are Simon McBurney is making it, or Kirsty Housley and Simon McBurney are making this, and that's a pretty good bet. And and the idea can be quite small then that that, that that gives you that feeling of trust. But for the majority of artists, uh we want a little bit more down on paper first, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. But it's it feels like part of, of the reality. I, I think it's a lack of confidence in what you have to make the decision on to spend the money. Yeah,
0: that's great. I just wrote down complicity. You are reading my mind right now. It's great, Stuart. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think we're always kind of, you know, you're right. We kind of do work on faith in some way. You know, you got to trust, you got to trust the process. You got to trust what the art is going to be, but you're right. You have to sort of know, have some knowns to take that sort of mitigated risk in some way, it feels like. Yeah, because that's that's where it all lands, right? Like you we, we started this conversation, started talking about COVID and having to think about the budget in a real way, right? And thinking about those risks that we take and and the shows that are certainly going to Show profit. I mean, but you, y'all, you started a little earlier. You mentioned uh, different funding sources. And so, I mean, one of the things that can you talk about maybe who are some of the bigger funders in your world? The UK and, and Europe have a very different system than our
1: nonprofit
0: model in the United States. Can you talk to me a little bit about who funds the work?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 all it's recently just changed a little bit because we've had a, a new kind of um, uh, a new budget allocation from the Arts Council. But essentially, the UK has the Arts Council, which is a, a sort of um, NGO, non government organization, which uh, takes money given to uh, generated by the government or various other sources and and allocates it to the arts within the UK and that's kind of everything from museums through to experimental dance companies. And uh, some companies it provides money to based on the money that they apply for. So a company will apply for say 25%, 50% of the budget to create a show and they will, you know, and then something like a quarter, a fifth of them will be successful, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And, and will give, be given that money by the Arts Council. Uh, but larger organisations belong to what's called the national portfolio, which is a which is a number of companies and theatres which are funded with a regular stipend from that arts council, um, uh, which can run anything from uh, you know uh, fifty grand a year, uh, fifty thousand pounds a year, sorry to uh, to millions, and the larger the organisation generally the larger the, the stipend um so the one that the national theatre's on i'm going to get this wrong because it's just changed but i think we receive something in the region of 14 or 15 million pounds a year from the arts council so it's a huge amount of money it's about the most amount of money any theater is given in the uk from the arts council but our operating budget for a year at the national is 100 million um so it actually represents in terms of money provided by the government and the taxpayer etc that actually represents only about 15 percent of the money which, which we need to operate and wow. um, a big chunk of that, of the money that makes up the rest of that comes from ticket sales. Uh, a huge amount of that that money, in fact, comes from ticket sales. I don't know the exact breakdown for the rest of it, but certainly box office is, is vastly important to the financial uh, stability of the National Theatre. How well shows sell here, how well shows sell abroad. We have National Theatre Productions, which is sort of semi-autonomous production company which exists, can make a profit. Uh, can feed some of that back to the national, which uh, which is you know it's national theater productions who are taking Lehman Trilogy to New York, who are taking Ocean End of the Lane around the country and around the world. But you know Warhorse, for instance, has been piling money into the national theaters coffers for a long time, but that's that's you're looking at a huge amount of money that needs to be made up by uh, everything that isn't the government. Obviously we then have donors, we have corporate sponsors. There are a, a number of different income streams outside of just box office and uh, and and the Arts Council. But, you know, things like bar revenue, we've got a very successful Riverside bar, we've got shops, we've got merchandising, we have National Theatre Live, we have National Theatre at Home now. Um, there are lots of different strands to what the National does. Um, but but the, the, the most important thing, the thing I think is most significant, particularly when you look at the National... In comparison to similarly sized organizations within europe um or at least similarly artistically ambitious organizations within europe um in particular is that uh we have to make most of our vast majority of our money comes from the profitability of the national theaters productions and and, and other activities and ancillary activities and um, if you look at you know, you take a theatre in in Vienna or Germany or whatever during COVID. Um, you know, they are fully funded in that period, and uh, they have actors who are within their ensembles or, or whatever who are paid their salary during that period. Uh, or the vast majority of their salary, and just don't work. I mean, within the UK theatre scene, when COVID hit, nobody had any, you know, no, no work, no money. That's that's how it was worked for freelancers, uh, who, you know, suffered hugely during during the pandemic. Um, but what's really significant is, I think, that the amount of money which the National Theatre has to generate itself versus what's it's given by the government uh, has increased exponentially over time. You know, the, the organisation now is required to make the vast majority of its money from ticket sales and that commercial pressure on, you know, we're in the subsidized sector, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're fully subsidized. I think that isn't always fully understood is that really we're in a hybrid version of it. Yes, there is really substantial and hugely well gratefully received state funding for the national theater. And we know how lucky we are to be here when a lot of companies re- receive far less, if any funding at all, but the screws are on to make the money. There's no, uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's there's no plan B really if we can't if we can't make successful work that audiences want to see. Um, it means that we serve a lot of different masters as a theatre. We want to be artistically ambitious, experimental. Uh, we want to inc- increase the diversity on our stages at all times, um, and we also have to make sure that the bottom line is looked after. Um, and and that chunk of money from the government uh, isn't gonna isn't gonna pay a uh, hundred million pounds worth of of artistic development and staffing.
0: That's wild. Thank you for all that. It's so much bigger than I ever imagined. I mean, it, it always is. It's like it's like let's go, let's talk about every single government structure and financial possibility. So it's like, oh yes, but thank you for outlining that so clearly. That's I really appreciate it. I don't want to assume anything, but I would think that you would have a pocket of money that would just be dedicated to New York new work. So then that may I'm wondering if that may or may not have influence on what may show up on your national theater stages, main stages.
1: I mean, we we have a separate budget for everything that we do here, so that's you know, yeah. it's to, to an extent it's protected. Um, but but certainly uh, we have to we're in in coming years we're going to have to look increasingly closely at expenditure and how much projects cost versus what they're likely to pay out. You know, we we're aware that we, as much as as exciting as it might be to to only develop, I suppose, extremely experimental and slightly niche work uh, here, given that we have the resources. Um, it, the pressure is also obviously or the 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 um, the, the will and pressure, I should say is here to create work which has uh, which has commercial appeal to an extent and like has, but we don't really need to think about it as commercial appeal, it just needs to have audience appeal. You know, I think particularly after COVID, particularly the UK going through just at the start of an absolutely dreadful cost of living crisis where, you know, extra spare money to spend on going to the theatre is going to be in really short supply. And so we have to be promising audiences a really great night out quite regularly you know it's got to be something that people genuinely want to see people have so much choice now in terms of what they do and i think after covid as well you know people got out of the habit of going to the theater as much and people found that they could live their lives without going to the theater and still be cultured people uh who who have plenty to stay at the dinner table or whatever um and so it's more important than ever i think that our stages um are genuinely tempting um i, I fundamentally believe that national theatre can't just serve people what they ought to be eating but has to serve things that they want and that's the joy working here as well you know like I, I that's the thing that i enjoy about this place that that i maybe haven't, haven't always been able to find elsewhere is that i the, the giving people a really good night out is so important to our business model <laughs> and you've got to think about what that is and how do you make that all of the things you wouldn't want it to be as well as a good night out and you know that's that's a real challenge but it's an exciting one I think yeah absolutely
0: all of this said is there anything you can tell us about that you're really looking forward to either on your stages or maybe something else that you've seen recently
1: what am I looking forward to that's coming soon uh well I'm seeing uh Clint Dyer's new version of Othello on Wednesday which I'm very excited about first preview for that uh, I love Othello I the last version of Othello which I saw at the National Theatre uh was uh, had Roy Kinnear and was absolutely as Iago and, and, and I think Adrian Lester as, as Othello was absolutely stunning uh we've got Giles Torreira playing Othello this time Paul Hilton playing Iago it's going to be just gorgeous I think I haven't seen a second of it haven't been working on it uh so I just get to go in and watch one of my favourite plays is done by these incredible artists, so I'm excited about that. It's a new version, yet yeah, new adaptation of the script. Okay. I mean, it's it's not it's not been rewritten; it's been heavily edited, and uh, there's a new interpretation. But yeah, it's very new and very bold from everything I hear, and that opens uh, for previews on Wednesday. So I'm excited about that. I've been spending quite a lot of time commissioning new musicals over the last year or two, um, and and uh, they're just starting to bear fruit, and I'm starting to see and hear the first bits of those which is really exciting the huge musical that we've been working on for 10 years I watched the workshop for two weeks ago and it was absolutely exhilarating and I just think it's going to be the hugest hit uh, when it comes to us next year so that I can't say any more about it other than that I think it's going to be a joy and yeah it's 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 some of the best artists in the country working at the top of their game and that's always always really exciting
0: very good cool Awesome Stuart thank you so much for your time today it really does mean a lot that you took time to chat and, and we could talk through some of these big things anything else that I didn't give you a chance to say that you're like bursting to say out loud
1: no just thank you so much for having me it's a real joy to talk and yeah uh, anything else you know that would be helpful to know always just drop me a message
0: The only, my only experience at the national was a production of Cyrano de Bergiac in 2006 or so, six oh, wow. or five or something like that I guess I just dated myself too but it, it, I don't care <laughs> But it was so delightful. I, I just when I, I can just imagine where you are, and I can just imagine the space and just the awe that I had walking into the national. And so it's really nice to revisit and refeel those feelings. And now know you who walk around the space <laughs> on the daily um, is really nice to think about. So thank you again so much for your time. And thank um,
1: you. well, if you're ever in town, give me a shout and let's grab a coffee or something. It'd be great to hear more about what you do out there. And um, if I'm ever in Milwaukee, I'll let you know. I'd love to be in Milwaukee.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. out the gates, I have to say that this is sort of a chance to really look at partnership in a really great way. Think about all the partnerships and connections that Stuart had prior to coming to the National, and now he gets to expound upon them and use them in his work. How fantastic. I really appreciate how Stewart found his way to his position at the National Theater. Just goes to show that a career path in America is very similar to how European processes as well. And for him to discuss how rehearsal space is cost prohibitive feels like a very true connection to modern Western issues as well. I really appreciate how Generate works. By bringing in groups who have planned performances ahead of them, but need the space to continue to create. To me, that is a great partnership. And the fact that Stewart and his team go out and scout that kind of work is really fantastic to me. I'm hearing parallels to what Diane Rodriguez did with Patricia Garza, as mentioned in season two, episode one, and also to how universes connected with Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It is such a great reminder that ensemble based work isn't always made for the scale that the national theater works and the way he talks about it that not every ensemble wants to be seen that way is a great reminder of perspective. What does success mean for your ensemble theater? We've been hearing that in a unique fashion from several folks, and I think it's worth exploring next season and beyond. I also really love the reminder that the term literary department is really committed to literature. It is hard to put physical theater in that box. An issue of semantics and The present perception of how new work can be created is so fascinating, right? It reminded me of an interview with Declan Donovan of Cheek by Jowl. Listen out for their podcast, Not True But Useful, on how literary is such a key term in the theater-making movement and process that we currently have. Also, I'd like to amend something in here that, from all the conversations I had, I know I said that things may be cost-prohibitive, But as Stuart was sure to point out, we put investment into text-based things all the time, and it is a common misperception to believe that it is more expensive. Theaters can choose how they want to allocate their funds, and taking the leap to believe in a devised process can be such a benefit to all artists and organizations. We sometimes spend as much time and resources as developing one playwright's words. Finally, Let me say that Stuart linked this back to Ben Cameron from Season 3, Episode 5, about how there are so many choices that people have these days in terms of what to watch. So, let's make it worth it for this audience. Okay, this is it for now. Season 3 is a wrap, but I've got interviews already in the can for Season 4, so stay tuned. In the meantime, please do let me know what you're interested in hearing about How can we continue to document these processes and movements all over the world? Hit me up at FTGU underscore pod and at Ensemble underscore ethnographer on Twitter and Instagram. Artists, it has been a pleasure to be with you again in this season, and I hope to be in your ears again soon. Our lightning round is coming up, but let me say, I wish you well and look forward to connecting with you again here on From the Ground Up. Can you tell me your favorite salutation?
1: I mean, I use quite a lot of surfer slang, largely because I've got a really bad memory for names, and in the theatre industry, you have learned so many names. So, like, everyone's like, "You do talk a bit like one of the Ninja Turtles." I'm like, "Well, that's a that's a carefully honed strategy to avoid embarrassing myself at large uh, large theatre gatherings." <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, Stuart! You and I are one and the same. I am like, yeah, hey, you. What's your favorite exclamation?
1: I think I say "wild" a lot. As in "wild." I use that a lot in a in a way that I'm trying to kind of limit, uh, but I think I use it as a kind of all-purpose exclamation. I don't quite know what the social, <laughs> what the socially correct answer is to something, whether it's good or bad. I think it's like. Pleasantly neutral in terms of what my actual opinion of the the, the statement, which has been made.
0: What a it. wild it circumstance. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It means nothing. It means nothing.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite uh, transportation?
1: Uh, I have a folding bicycle, which I acquired a year ago. And uh, her name is Coral. She's a Brompton.
0: What would you be doing if not theater?
1: Maybe, maybe sort of either TV or radio, probably something storytelling, I guess.
0: What is the opposite of a senior dramaturg at the National Theater?
1: somebody who spends all day working on their feet and with their hands because it's a very sedentary and computer and uh comfy chair and rehearsal room based role
0: what's your favorite kind of ice cream
1: um don't really like ice cream very much but i suppose probably uh like with honeycomb in it you know like uh they call it thunder and lightning in in the lake district i don't know if that's a common term but yes yeah, sort of struck with um with honeycomb in it That's my
0: and then last here uh what does ensemble mean to you
1: I use it in a lot of different contexts. I suppose for me, an ensemble is a group of people brought together to with a common endeavour uh, whose work continues beyond the ending of that endeavour.
0: This has been another episode of From the Ground Up. You can find, like, and follow this podcast at FTGU underscore pod or me, Jeffrey Moser, at Ensemble underscore ethnographer on Instagram and at Kinetic Mimetic on Twitter. Think you or someone you know ought to be on the show? Send us an email at FTGUPod at gmail.com. We also accept fan mail and requests. Access to all of our past episodes can be found on my website, JeffreyMoser.com, as well as howround.com. The audio bed was created by Kiran Videla. You can find him on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and flutesatdawn.org. This podcast is produced as a contribution to the HowlRound Theatre Commons. You can find more episodes of this series and other HowlRound podcasts in our feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Simplecast, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to search HowlRound Theatre Commons Podcasts and subscribe to receive new episodes. If you love this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can find a transcript for the episode along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the comments.